Chapter 5 of The Go-Getter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Go-Getter by Peter B. Kind. Chapter 5. A week from the succeeding Saturday, Mr. Skinner did not come down to the office, but a telephone message from his home informed the chief clerk that Mr. Skinner was at home and somewhat indisposed. The chief clerk was to advise Mr. Peck that he, Mr. Skinner, had contemplated having a conference with the latter that day, but that his indisposition would prevent this. Mr. Skinner hoped to be feeling much better tomorrow, and since he was very desirous of a conference with Mr. Peck before the latter should depart on his next selling pilgrimage on Monday, would Mr. Peck be good enough to call at Mr. Skinner's home at one o'clock Sunday afternoon? Mr. Peck sent back word that he would be there at the appointed time and was rewarded with Mr. Skinner's thanks via the chief clerk. Promptly at one o'clock the following day, Bill Peck reported at the general manager's house. He found Mr. Skinner in bed reading the paper and looking surprisingly well. He trusted Mr. Skinner felt better than he looked. Mr. Skinner did, and at once entered into a discussion of the new customers, other prospects he particularly desired Mr. Peck to approach, new business to be investigated, and further details without end. In the midst of the conference, Cappy Ricks telephoned. A portable telephone stood on the commode beside Mr. Skinner's bed, so the latter answered immediately. Comrade Peck watched Skinner listen attentively for fully two minutes, then heard him say, Mr. Ricks, I'm very sorry. I'd love to do this errand for you, but really I'm under the weather. In fact, I'm in bed as I speak to you now. But Mr. Peck is here with me, and I'm sure he'll be very happy to attend to the matter for you. By all means, Bill Peck hastened to assure the general manager. Who does Mr. Ricks want killed, and where should I have the body delivered? Ha 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 ha! Mr. Skinner had a singularly annoying, mirthless laugh as if he begrudged himself such an unheard-of indulgence. Mr. Peck says he informed Cappy that he'll be delighted to attend to the manor for you. He wants to know whom you want killed and where you wish the body delivered. Ha, ha, ha. Peck, Mr. Ricks, will speak to you. Bill Peck took the telephone. Good afternoon, Mr. Ricks. Hello, old soldier. What are you doing this afternoon? Nothing. After I conclude my conference with Mr. Skinner. By the way, he has just given me a most handsome boost in salary for which I am most appreciative. I feel, however, despite Mr. Skinner's graciousness, that you have put in a kind word for me with him, and I want to thank you. Tut-tut. Not a peep out of you, sir, not a peep. You get nothing for nothing from Skinner or me. However, in view of the fact that you're feeling kindly toward me this late afternoon, I wish you'd do a little errand for me. I can't send a boy, and I hate to make a messenger out of you, or, um, um, ha, uh, that is, uh, I have no false pride, Mr. Ricks. Thank you, Bill. Glad you feel that way about it. Bill, I was prowling around town this forenoon after church, and down in a store on Sutter Street between Stockholm and Powell Street on the right-hand side, as you face Market Street, I saw a blue vase in the window. I have a weakness for vases, Bill. I'm a sharp on them, too. Now, this vase I saw isn't very expensive as vases go. In fact, I wouldn't buy it for my collection. But one of the finest and sweetest ladies of my acquaintance has the mate to that blue vase I saw in the window, and I know she'd be prouder than Punch if she had two of them, one for each side of her drawing-room mantle, understand? 
Now I'm leaving from the Southern Pacific Depot at eight o'clock tonight, bound for Santa Barbara to attend her wedding anniversary tomorrow night. I forget what anniversary it is, Bill, but I have been informed by my daughter that I'll be very much de trop if I send any present other than something in porcelain or china or cloisonne. Well, Bill, this crazy little blue vase just fills the order, understand? Yes, sir. You feel that it would be most graceful on your part if you could bring this little blue vase down to Santa Barbara with you tonight. You have to have it tonight, because if you wait until the store opens on Monday, the vase will reach your hostess 24 hours after her anniversary party. Exactly, Bill. Now I've simply got to have that vase. If I had discovered it yesterday, I wouldn't be asking you to get it for me today, Bill. Please don't make any explanations or apologies, Mr. Ricks. You have described the vase. No, you haven't. What sort of blue is it? How tall is it? And what is approximately its greatest diameter? Does it sit on a base or does it not? Is it solid blue or is it figured? It's a cloisonne vase, Bill. Sort of old Dutch blue or Delft, with some oriental funny business on it. I couldn't describe it exactly, but it has some birds and flowers on it. It's about a foot tall and four inches in diameter, and it sets on a teakwood base. Very well, sir, you shall have it and you'll deliver it to me in stateroom A, car 7, aboard the train at 3rd and Townsend Street at 7.35 tonight. Yes, sir. Thank you, Bill. The expense will be trifling. Collect it from the cashier in the morning and tell him to charge it to my account. And Cappy hung up. At once, Mr. Skinner took up the thread of the interrupted conference, and it was not until 3 o'clock that Bill Peck left his house and proceeded downtown to locate Cappy's blue vase. He proceeded to the block in Sutter Street, between Stockton and Powell Streets, and although he walked patiently up one side of the street and down the other, not a single vase of any description showed in any shop window, nor could he find a single shop where such a vase as Cappy had described might, perchance, be displayed for sale. I think the old boy has erred in his coordinates of the target, Bill Peck concluded, or else I misunderstood him. I'll telephone his house and ask him to repeat them. He did, but nobody was home except a Swedish maid, and all she knew that Mr. Ricks was out, and the hour of his return was unknown. So Mr. Peck went back to Sutter Street and scoured once more every shop window in the block. Then he scouted two blocks above Powell and two blocks below Stockton. Still the blue vase remained invisible. So he transferred his search to a corresponding area on Bush Street, and when that failed he went painstakingly over four blocks of Post Street. He was still without results when he moved one block further west and one further south and discovered the blue vase in a huge plate-glass window of a shop on Geary Street near Grant Avenue. He surveyed it critically and was convinced that it was the object he sought. He tried the door, but it was locked, as he had anticipated it would be. So he kicked the door and raised an infernal racket, hoping against hope that the noise might bring a watchman from the rear of the building. In vain, he backed out to the edge of the sidewalk and read the sign over the door. B. Cohen's Art Shop. This was a start, so Mr. Peck limped over to the Palace Hotel and procured a telephone directory. By actual count, there were 19 B. Cohen's scattered throughout the city. So before commencing to call the 19, Bill Peck borrowed the city directory from the hotel clerk and scanned it for the particular B. Cohen who owned the art shop. His search availed him nothing. 
B. Cohen was listed as an art dealer at the address where the blue vase reposed in the window. That was all. I suppose he's a commuter, Mr. Peck concluded, and at once proceeded to procure directories of the adjacent cities of Berkeley, Oakland, and Alameda. They were not available, so in despair he changed a dollar into five-cent pieces, sought a telephone booth, and commenced calling up all of the B. Cohens in San Francisco. Of the nineteen, four did not answer, three were temporarily disconnected, six replied in Yiddish, five were not the B. Cohen he sought, and one swore he was Irish, and that his name was spelled Cohan, and pronounced with an accent on both syllables. The B. Cohen's resident in Berkeley, Oakland, and Alameda, San Rafael, Sausalito, Mill Valley, San Mateo, Redwood City, and Palo Alto were next telephoned to, and whom this long and expensive task was done. Ex-Private Bill Peck emerged from the telephone booth ringing wet with perspiration and as irritable as a clucking hen. Once outside the hotel, he raised his haggard face to heaven and dumbly queried the Almighty what he might be saving him from a quick death on the field of honor only to condemn him to be talked to death by B. Cohen's in civil life. It was now six o'clock. Suddenly Bill Peck had an inspiration. Was the name spelled Cohen, Cohan, Cone, Cone, or Cone? If I have to take a Jewish census again tonight, I'll die, he told himself desperately and went back to the art shop. The sign read B. Cone's Art Shop. I wish I knew a bootlegger's joint, poor Peck complained. I'm pretty far gone, and a little wood alcohol wouldn't hurt me much now. Why, I could have sworn the name was spelled with an E. It seems to me I noted that particularly. He went back to the hotel phone telephone booth and commenced calling up all the B. Cones in town. There were eight of them. Six of them were out. One was maudlin with liquor, and the other was very deaf and shouted unintelligibly. Peace have its barbiturates, no less than war, Mr. Peck sighed. He changed a twenty-dollar bill into nickels, dimes, and quarters, returned to the hot, ill-smelling telephone booth, and proceeded to lay down a barrage of telephone calls to the B. Cones of all towns of any important contiguous to San Francisco Bay. And he was lucky. On the sixth call, he located the particular B. Cone in San Rafael, only to be informed by Mr. Cone's cook that Mr. Cone was dining at the home of Mr. Simons in Mill Valley. There were three Mr. Simons in Mill Valley, and Peck called them all before commencing with the right one. Yes, Mr. B. Cone was there, who wished to speak to him. Mr. Heck? Oh, Mr. Lake? A silence. Then Mr. Cone says he doesn't know any Mr. Lake and wants to know the nature of your business. He is dining and doesn't like to be disturbed unless the matter is of grave importance. Tell him Mr. Peck wishes to speak with him on the matter of great importance, wailed the ex-private. Mr. Metz? Mr. Ben Metz? No, no, no. Peck. P-E-C-K. D-E-C-K? No. P. C? P. Oh, yes. E. E what? C-K. Oh, yes, Mr. Eckstein. Call Cone to the phone, or I'll go over there on the next boat and kill you, you damned idiot, shrieked Peck. Tell him his store is on fire. That message was evidently delivered, for almost instantly Mr. Cone was huffing and sputtering into the phone. Is that der fire marshal? he managed to articulate. 
Listen, Mr. Cohn, your store is not on fire, but I had to say that in order to get you to the telephone. I'm Mr. Peck, a total stranger to you. You have a blue vase in your shop window on Geary Street in San Francisco. I want to buy it, and I want to buy it before 7.45 tonight. I want you to come across the bay to open the store and sell me that vase. Such a business. But you think I am. Crazy? No, Mr. Cohn, I do not. I'm the only crazy man talking. I'm crazy for that vase, and I've got to have it right away. You know what that vase costs? Mr. Cone dripped syrup. No, and I don't give a hoot what it costs. I want that vase. I want it, and I want it when I want it. Do you get it? Well, let me see. What time is it? A silence while Mr. Cone evidently looked at his watch. It is a quarter to seven, Mr. Eckstein. Under the next drain from Mill Valley, don't leave till eight o'clock. Dot will get me to San Francisco at eight fifty, and I am dining with me friends and up it just finished my soup. To hell with your soup. I want that blue vase. Vell, I tell you, Mr. Eckstein, if you've got to have it, call up my head salesman, Herman Juiced, in Der Chilton Apartments, Prospect three four two nine, and tell him I said he should come down right way quick and sell you that blue base. Goodbye, Mr. Eckstein. And B. Cone hung up. Instantly, Peck called Prospect 3429 and asked for Herman Juiced. Mr. Juiced's mother answered. She was desolated because Herman was not at home, but vouchsafed the information that he was dining at the country club. Which country club? She did not know. So Peck procured from the hotel clerk a list of the country clubs in and around San Francisco and started calling them up. At eight o'clock he was still being informed that Mr. Juice was not a member and Mr. Luce wasn't in, that Mr. Coos had been dead three months and that Mr. Boose had played but eight holes when he received a telegram calling him back to New York. At the other clubs Mr. Juice was unknown. Licked, murmured Bill Peck, but never it be said that I didn't go down fighting. I'm going to heave a brick through that show window, grab the vase, and run with it. He engaged a taxicab and instructed the driver to wait for him at the corner of Geary and Stockholm. Also, he borrowed from the chauffeur a ball-peen hammer. When he reached the art shop of B. Cone, however, a policeman was standing in the doorway, violating the general orders of policemen on duty and surreptitiously smoking a cigar. He'll nab me if I crack that window, the desperate Peck decided, and continued on down the street, crossed to the other side, and came back. It was now dark, and over the shop, B. Cone's name burned in small red, white, and blue electric lights. And lo, it was spelled B. Cohen. Ex-Private William E. Peck sat down on a fire hydrant and cursed with rage. His weak leg hurt him, too. And for some damnable reason, the stump on his left arm developed a feeling that the missing hand was itchy. The world is filled with idiots, he raved furiously. I'm tired and I'm hungry. I skipped luncheon and I've been too busy to think of dinner. He walked back to his taxicab and returned to the hotel, where, hope springing eternal in his breast, he called Prospect 3249 and discovered that the missing Herman Juiced had returned to the bosom of his family. To him the frantic Peck delivered the message of B. Cone, whereupon the cautious Herman Juiced replied that he would confirm the authenticity of the message by telephoning Mr. Cone at Mr. Simpson's home in Mill Valley. If Mr. Cone or Cohen confirmed 
Keck's story, he, the said Herman Joost, would be in the store sometime before nine o'clock, and if Mr. Keck cared to, he might wait for them there. Mr. Keck said he would be delighted to meet, wait for him there. At 9.15, Herman Joost appeared on the scene. On his way down the street, he had taken the precaution to pick up a policeman and bring him along with him. The lights were switched on in the store, and Mr. Joost lovingly extracted the blue base from the window. "'What's the cursed thing worth?' Peck demanded. Two thousand dollars,' Mr. Juice responded without so much a quiver of his eyelash. "'Cash,' he added, apparently as an afterthought. The exhausted Peck leaned against the sturdy guardian of the law and sighed. This was the final straw. He had about ten dollars in his possession. "'You refuse absolutely to accept my check?' he quivered. "'I don't know you, Mr. Peck,' Herman Juice replied simply. "'Where's your telephone?' Mr. Juice led Peck to the telephone, and the latter called up Mr. Skinner. This is all that is mortal of Bill Peck speaking. I've got the store open, and for $2,000 cash I can buy the blue vase Mr. Ricks has sent his heart upon. Oh, Peck, dear fellow, Mr. Skinner purred sympathetically. Have you been all this time on that errand? I have, and I'm going to stick to the job until I deliver the goods. For God's sake, let me have $2,000 and bring it down to me at B. Cohen's art shop on Geary Street near Grant Avenue. I am too utterly exhausted to go up after it. My dear Peck, I haven't two thousand dollars in my house. That's too great a sum of money to keep on hand. Well, then come down to open up the office safe and get the money for me. Time lock on the office safe, Peck, impossible. Well, then, come down and identify me at hotels and cafes and restaurants so I can cash my own check. Is your check good, Mr. Peck? The flood of invective which had been accumulating in Mr. Peck's system all the afternoon now broke its bounds. He screamed at Mr. Skinner, a blasphemous invitation to betake himself to the lower regions. Tomorrow morning, he promised hoarsely, I'll beat you to death with the stump of my left arm, you miserable, cold-blooded, lazy, stiffless slacker. He called up Cappy Rick's residence next and asked for Captain Matt Peasley who he knew made his house with his father-in-law. Matt Peasley came to the telephone and listened sympathetically to Peck's tale of woe. Peck, that's the worst outrage I've ever heard of, he declared. The idea of setting you on such a task, you take my advice and forget the blue vase. I can't, Peck panted. Mr. Ricks will feel mighty chagrined if I fail to get the vase for him. I wouldn't disappoint him for my right arm. It's been a dead game sport with me, Captain Peasley. But it's too late to go get the vase to him, Peck. He left the city at eight o'clock, and is now it's almost half-past nine. I know, but if I can secure legal possession of the vase, I'll get it to him before he leaves the train at Santa Barbara at six o'clock tomorrow morning. How? There's a flying school out at the marina, and one of the pilots there is a friend of mine. He'll fly to Santa Barbara with me in the vase. You're crazy. I know it. Please lend me two thousand dollars. What for? To pay for the vase. Now I know you're crazy or drunk. Why, if Cappy Ricks ever forgot himself to the extent of $2,000 for a vase, he'd bleed to death in an hour. Won't you let me have the $2,000, Captain Peasley? I will not peck, old son. Go home and to bed and forget about it. Please, I can cash your checks. You're known so much better than I, and it's Sunday night. And it's a fine way to keep the holy Sabbath day, Matt Peasley retorted and hung up. Well, Herman Juice queried, do we stay here all night? 
Bill Peck bowed his head. Look here, he demanded suddenly. Do you know a good diamond when you see it? I do, Herman Juice replied. Well, you wait here while I go to my hotel and get one. Sure. Bill Peck limped painfully away. Forty minutes later, he returned with a platinum ring set with diamonds and sapphires. What are they worth, he demanded. Herman Juice looked over the ring and lovingly appraised it conservatively at $2,500. Take it as security for payment of my check, Peck pleaded. Give me a receipt for it. After my check has gone through clearing, I'll come back and get the ring. Fifteen minutes later, with the blue vase packed in Excelsior and reposing in a stout cardboard box, Bill Peck entered a restaurant and ordered dinner. When he had dined, he engaged a taxi and was driven to the flying field at the marina. From the night watchman, he ascertained the address of his pilot friend, and at midnight, with his friend at the wheel, Bill Peck, and his blue vase soared up into the moonlight and headed south. An hour and a half later, he landed in the stubble field at Salinas Valley, and bidding his friend goodbye, Bill Peck trudged across the railroad tracks and sat down. When the train bearing Cappy Ricks came roaring down the valley, Peck twisted a Sunday paper with which he had provided himself into an improvised torch which he lighted. Standing between the rails, he swung the flaming paper frantically. The train slid to a halt. A brakeman opened the vestibule door, and Bill Peck stepped warily aboard. "'What do you mean by flagging this train?' the brakeman demanded angrily, as he singled the engineer to proceed. "'Got a ticket?' "'No.' but I've got the money to pay my way, and I flagged this train because I wanted to change my method of travel. I'm looking for a man in stateroom A of car 7, and if you try and block me, there'll be murder done. That's right. Take advantage of your half-portion arm and abuse me, the brakeman retorted bitterly. Are you looking for that little old man with the Henry Clay collar and the mutton-chop whiskers? I certainly am. Well, he was looking for you just before we left in San Francisco. He asked me if I had seen a one-armed man with a box under his good arm. I'll lead you to him. The prolonged ringing of Cappy's stateroom door brought the old gentleman to the entrance in his nightshirt. Very sorry to have to disturb you, Mr. Ricks, said Bill Peck, but the fact is there are so many Cohens and Cones and Cohans, and it was such a job to dig up two thousand dollars that I failed to connect with you at 7.45 last night as per orders. It was absolutely impossible for me to accomplish the task within the time limits set, but I was resolved that you should not be disappointed. Here is the vase. The shop was, wasn't was within four blocks of where you thought it was, sir, but I am sure I found the right vase. It ought to be. It cost enough, and it's hard enough to get, so it should be precious enough to form a gift for any friend of yours. Cappy Rick stared at Bill Peck as if the latter were a wraith. By the twelve ragged apostles, he murmured, by the holy pink-toed prophet. We changed the sign on you, and we stacked the Cohens on you, and we set a policeman to guard the shop to keep you from breaking the window, and we made you dig up $2,000 on Sunday night in a town where you are practically unknown, and while you missed the train at 8 o'clock, you overtake it at 2 o'clock in the morning and deliver the blue vase. Come in and rest your poor old leg, Bill. Brakeman, I am much obliged to you. Bill Peck entered and slumped wearily down on the settee. So it was a plant he cracked, and his voice trembled with rage. Well, sir, you're an old man, and you've been good to me, so I do not begrudge you your little joke. But, Mr. Ricks, I can't stand things like I used to. My leg hurts, and my stump hurts, and my heart hurts. 
He paused, choking, and the tears of impotent rage filled his eyes. You shouldn't treat me that way, sir, he complained presently. I've been trained not to question orders, even when they seem utterly foolish to me, and I've been trained to obey them on time if possible, but if impossible to obey them anyhow. I've been taught loyalty to my chief, and I'm sorry my chief found it necessary to make a buffoon of me. I haven't had a very good time these past three years, and you can p -p -p pass your skunk spruce and larch rustic and short odd length stock to some other slacker like Skinner, and you'd better arrange to replace Skinner because he's young enough to take a beating. But I'm going to give it to him, and it'll be at a hospital job, sir. Cappy Ricks ruffled Bill Peck's aching head with a paternal hand. Bill, old boy, it was cruel damnably cruel, but I had a big job for you, and I wanted to find out a lot of things about you before I entrusted you with that job. So I arranged to give you the degree of the blue vase, which is the supreme test of a go-getter. You thought you carried into this stateroom a $2,000 vase, but between ourselves you really carried in was a $10,000 job as our Shanghai manager. What? What? Every time I have to pick out a permanent holder of a job worth $10,000 or more, I give the candidate the degree of the blue vase, Cappy explained. I've had two men out of a field of 15 deliver the vase, Bill. Bill Peck had forgotten his rage, but the tears of his recent fury still glistened in his bold blue eyes. Thank you, sir. I forgive you, and I'll make good in Shanghai. I know you will, Bill. Now tell me, son, weren't you tempted to quit when you discovered the almost in superable obstacles I'd placed in your way? Yes, sir, I was. I wanted to commit suicide before I'd finished telephoning all of the C-O-H-E-N-S in the world. And when I started on the C-O-H-N-S, well, it was this way, sir. I just couldn't quit because I would have been a disloyal to a man I once knew. Who was he? Cappy demanded, and there was awe in his voice. He was my brigadier, and he had a brigade motto, it shall be done. When the division commander called him up and told him to move forward with his brigade and occupy certain territory, our brigadier would say, very well, sir, it shall be done. If any officer in his brigade showed signs of flunking his job because it appeared impossible, the brigadier would just look at him once, and then that officer would remember the motto and go about his job or die trying. In the army, sir, the esprit de corps doesn't bubble up from the bottom. It filters down from the top. An organization is what its commanding officer is, neither better nor worse. In my company, when the top sergeant handed out a week of kitchen police to a buck, that buck was out of luck if he couldn't muster a grin and say, All right, sergeant, it shall be done. The brigadier sent for me once and ordered me to go out and get a certain German sniper. I'd been pretty lucky. Some days I'd get enough for a mess and he'd heard of me. He opened a map and said to me, Here's about where he holds up. Go and get him, Private Peck. Well, Mr. Ricks, I snapped into it and gave him a rifle salute and said, Sir, it shall be done. I'll never forget the look that man gave. He came down to the field hospital to see me after I'd walked into one of those Austrian 88s. I knew my left wing was a total loss, and I suspected my left leg was about to leave me, and I was downhearted and wanted to die. He came and bucked me up. He said, Well, Private Peck, you're not half dead. In civil life, you're going to be worth half a dozen live ones, aren't you? 
but I was pretty far gone, and I told him I didn't believe it. So he gave me a hard look and said, Private Peck will do the utmost to recover, and as a starter he will smile. Of course, putting it down in the form of the order, I had to give him my usual reply, so I grinned and said, Sir, it shall be done. He was quite a man, sir, and his brigade had a soul. His soul. I see, Bill. And his soul goes marching on. Who was he, Bill? Bill Peck named his idol. By the twelve ragged apostles, there was awe in Cappy Rick's voice. There was reverence in his faded old eyes. Sonny continued gently. Twenty-five years ago, your brigadier was a candidate for an important job in my employ, and I gave him the degree of the blue vase. He couldn't get the vase legitimately, so he threw a cobblestone through the window, grabbed the vase, and ran a mile and a half before the police captured him. Cost me a lot of money to square the case and keep it quiet. But he was too good, Bill, and I couldn't stand in his way, so I let him go forward to his destiny. But tell me, Bill, how did you get the $2,000 to pay for the vase? Once, said ex-private Peck thoughtfully, the brigadier and I were first at a dugout entrance. It was a headquarters dugout, and they wouldn't surrender, so I bombed them. And when we went down, I found a finger with a ring on it. And the brigadier said that if I didn't take the ring, somebody else would. I left that ring as security for my check. But how could you have the courage to let me in for a $2,000 vase? Didn't you realize the price was absurd and I might repudiate the transaction? Certainly not. You are responsible for the acts of your servant. You are a true blue sport and would never repudiate any action. You told me what to do, but you did not insult my intelligence by telling me how to do it. When my late brigadier sent me after the German sniper, he did not take into consideration the probability that the sniper might get me. He told me to get the sniper. It was my business to see to it that I accomplished my mission and carried my objective, which, of course, I could not have done if I had permitted the German to get me. I see, Bill. Well, give that blue vase to the porter in the morning. I paid fifteen cents for it in a five, ten, and fifteen cents store. Meanwhile... Hop into that upper berth and help yourself to a well-earned rest. But aren't you going to a wedding anniversary at Santa Barbara, Mr. Ricks? No, I'm not. Bill, I discovered a long time ago that it's a good idea for me to get out of town and play golf as often as I can. Besides, which prudence dictates that I remain away from the office for a week after the seeker of the blue vase fails to deliver the goods? And, by the way, Bill, what sort of game do you play? Oh, forgive me, Bill. I forgot about your left arm. Say, look here, sir, Bill Peck retorted. I'm big enough and ugly enough to play one-handed golf, but have you ever tried it? No, sir, Bill Peck replied seriously, but it shall be done. End of chapter 5 End of The Go-Getter